0: Join me as we pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that this book of Genesis, this text in particular, speaks to a foundation for how we think about being a human, uh, for those of us who are women, being women, uh, for those of us who are men, for how we consider women. And so we ask that you would shape our minds by your word and by your Holy Spirit, lift our eyes to Jesus, that he might be the one whom we live for, we find our identity in, and we look toward our end and our home. And we pray this together, asking for the help of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through a series in the book of Genesis, and it's, we're looking at foundations for life. And what that means is we're uh, investigating what the Bible says about uh, the big things in life uh, from its book of beginning. So it very much is foundational for a Christian worldview. And so in that, uh, we've been looking at topics like God uh, from our text of creation, how the world came to be, of work, of manhood. And now we look at womanhood or what it means to be a woman As we look at this text, we look at it from God's perspective, how he has revealed it to us in the book of Genesis, and how that has actually played out to give us a fresh vision for what it means to be a woman in our day and age. Remember, this was written a very long time ago, and it records something that uh, those who wrote it didn't, didn't see themselves. This is the book of beginnings. And so it is a great place to start. Uh, Some of you might have heard the song, uh, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. Uh, You may uh, know that is based on a woman called Annie Oakley, who was a sharp shooting genius. She was able to shoot a cigar at distance out of her husband's hand. Frank Butler and they went on a travelling roadshow with Buffalo Bill to demonstrate her shooting prowess. But the song goes in the play that was made, Broadway, a musical that was based upon uh, the real life events. She would sing, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better. And it turns out that she could. Turns out Annie Oakley was good at many more things than her uh, husband to be Frank Butler. But that's very much the uh, The idea that comes into our head when it comes to thinking about our current culture's views on womanhood is that anything a man can do, well, perhaps a woman can do better. And many of us women here today may know that that is, in fact, true. (laughs) We can do things better than men can for women. Now, this isn't a battle of the sexes when it comes to biblical womanhood. It's actually getting a framework for God's perspective. See, there's, different, uh, there's a spectrum of ideas here. And we're actually stepping outside of that spectrum to look at God's perspective. So first I want to uh, bring you through a framework for the divine identity of women. Now we're looking at that one verse again today because there's so much packed into it, it's really important for us to investigate. In that one verse, Genesis one twenty-seven. it gives us the idea of the imago day, that is, made in the image of God. So just as last week we looked that men are made in the image of God, so are women. Women are made in the image of God, they are image bearers of God. And so, uh, as author Elizabeth Elliot, who uh, many know because she was the widow of Jim Elliot, the, the um, famous missionary uh, in uh, Central and Southern America, and uh, she, in her book uh, about woman, biblical womanhood, said, knowing who you are comes from knowing whose you are. This idea of identity... For women, it comes out of who made us. The foundation for it comes out of who made us. Our text here tells us that women have full equality in their nature. That is, just like men and in the same way that man is created in the image of God, so are women. And yet they are distinct. There's not just one sex, there are two. We find out in the Bible that woman was created out of man, but they are distinct in the way that they represent the image of God. And so we have this fundamental equality, and we love that word equality in our current day and age, but it, actually the idea, the concept of it is foreign to a secular worldview. The concept for equality comes from the Bible, that men and women and people in general have a fundamental equality. Why? Because they're made equally in the image of God. That means women, just like men, everything in the Bible that talks about human beings in general equally applies to women and men. Now, there are distinctions between men and women, and we'll get to those shortly. But we must acknowledge that the idea of equality comes from God. Now, uh, where are the uh, where do the distinctions come? Well, we must recognise that whilst men and women are made equal, they are not interchangeable. That is, it's quite obvious. Men and women have biological differences. Right? Men generally have more muscle. Generally, women generally have less in in, in their body structure. Women can have children. Men cannot. And so because of our biological differences and differences when it comes to childbearing, it means that we have differences when it comes to roles at different times, culturally specific. That's just obvious. We can't ignore these things. We, again, we must look to what the Bible tells us, that biological uh, sex is equals gender from a biblical worldview. Now, our culture doesn't acknowledge that, but the Bible is really clear on that. And it has been obvious to almost without exception every culture throughout human history except for our current secular West. Makes you think, doesn't it? So we're equal but not interchangeable. We're equal yet distinct. Women are distinct from men. Women, however, are interdependent with men, not independent of them. We see a little bit later in the book of uh, Genesis. In fact, the next chapter over, Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Woman was made out to rectify the issue of human loneliness. So there is a direct relationship between man and woman because woman was made out of man. And we see in this pre-fall, that is before sin entered the world, an amazing concept that everything is in its right order. The woman and man are both in right relationship with God and they're in right relationship with God. Each other. So we cannot think about what it means to be a woman apart from who God is and God having made women, but we cannot think about what it means to be a woman apart from men either because of the way that they were made. 1 Corinthians 11 puts it like this, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Can you see this relationship going on here? We have the woman relating to God because of her God-given identity in him, and the woman also relating to man. When you have all of these three, woman to man and woman to God, all in relationship Together, things are set right. Identity is firm and secure. But when you pull those apart, woman's identity becomes insecure. It loses its foundation. So, what does this mean? There's a very basic level for us today. It means that the primary distinctions of women are in her relationships and her biology. That's what the Bible teaches. The primary distinctions of women are in her relationships and biology. And so that has been applied differently in different cultures. We see that applied differently in the nation of Israel, and we see that applied differently when we come to the time of the church in the New Testament. But the fundamental distinctions of women are in their biology and her relationships. How she relates to man and how she relates to God. This means that femininity, according to the Bible, is good. Being a woman is good. Being distinctive as a woman is God because it is in the image of God. This means women having relationships with men is good, both as appropriate friendships and in marriage. These are good things that we see. Now, of course, we know that things are complex and they're complex because of Genesis chapter 3. They're they're complex because of sin. They're complex because in our current day and age, we are in a very interesting time. For actually much of uh, church history uh, coming out of the Bible, women's place has been upheld and championed and really pioneered by Christianity. Christians have been the ones who have upheld women's equality in made in the image of God and their distinctiveness. And yet, sadly, Christians have also abused that. We see that it's been abused in the church, and so women have been subjugated to the home and domineered by men at times and society encouraged by the Bible. But that's not the whole story. Uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, a Christian historian, says that the meteoric rise of the United States in prosperity is primarily due to women being allowed to enter the workforce feeling a sense of personal security and safety. So, so And that was for Christian reasons. A country that was formed on the idea of Christian virtues where women would be safe and protected uh, where the family unit was upheld, meant that women were, felt safe and able to work outside the home, which basically freed 50% of the workforce and enabled this meteoric rise of one nation into the highest place of prosperity that's actually ever been seen in the world. Why? Because of a Christian view of womanhood. Now, we see all this with its brokenness mixed in. But we must recognise that from a biblical viewpoint, there is much good that that Christianity has done for women. Now, this is very interesting because when we think about men and women, and particularly women's roles, we we tend to think of, okay, the woman has to work in the home, uh, and the man goes off to work each day. But these ideas actually aren't as biblical, perhaps, as you think. Listen to this from Peter Adam. Peter Adam which is an Australian theologian, on the domestic captivity of the church. He says, in the, Before the Industrial Revolution, home and work was the same place. And work was often a family business, in which members of the family all took part in that business. And sometimes servants or apprentices were received into the family to help with the business. After the Industrial Revolution, home and work were separated. While initially, women and children went off to work at factories as well as men, eventually it was mainly men who left home each day to go to work. So for the first time, there was a general and significant separation between home and work. And this separation was made more complete when there was an increasing separation between suburbs for homes and industrial suburbs and city centres for work. People lived in the suburbs and men went to work elsewhere. Some of the things we take for granted as being maybe a little bit outdated but culturally ingrained is that the man goes off to work and the woman stays home with the children actually come out of changes in industry more than biblical values. Listen to this. This industrial revolution had three results for men, women and children, according to Peter Adam. Firstly, men went off to work to a different world with different issues and pressures. So they became absent husbands and fathers. Essentially, just wait till your father gets home was what the mother would tell the children and were valued for the money they brought home as a result of their work. Secondly, women stayed at home, became domestic and became the effective parent. They did not earn money but became responsible for running the household. They were concerned with family and domestic matters, not issues of the workplace. This might be ringing true. Thirdly, children were raised mostly by mothers with the help of aunts and grandmothers. Child-rearing became women's business and children suffered from the absence of fathers. Industrial revolution has framed a lot of the ways that we think about what it means to be a woman in terms of her roles. But interestingly, the Bible paints a very different picture. The Bible paints a picture where men and women can go to work. The Bible paints a picture where it is good for a woman to be distinctive in her femininity and embrace motherhood if that is available to her. It, puts, it takes away the pressures which pull us you know, towards being extreme in uh, that women can do absolutely everything that men can do in every way, and they should, but it pulls us away from the other extreme, which has no distinctions between genders whatsoever, a kind of fluidity between the genders. The Bible gives us a centre which makes sense. So what does this tell us? This tells us that only under God, and in relation to God and to man, do we get a full understanding of woman's identity. So we've looked at the framework for Uh, a woman's identity based on her being made in the image of God. We now look to this search that women have today to find that solidness of identity, to to go to something that is grounded because we've lost in many ways what what the Bible speaks of in Genesis chapter 1. It doesn't seem present in our day and age. We're searching for something. In uh, the book Matilda by Roald Dahl, Matilda's natural gifts are crushed by her parents who believe that her braininess is undesirable for a little girl to have. Her school principal, Mrs. Miss Trunchbull, uh, likes to hammer throw her students uh, over the fence and for those whom she dislikes particularly, she will throw them into the chokey. And she seeks to crush Matilda's Uh, education and her spirit as part of her job. Matilda spends much of her early days at school being crushed both at home and in her place of education. How can she discover her true purpose and meaning in life? What can she do to come out of this place? Now, in our current day and age, we have a lot of confusion When it comes to the question, what is a woman? When we, as a culture, have divorced ourselves from Christianity, we lose our foundations. And so we go from this um, extremes of a uh, a spectrum. So on the one side, we think that women are totally interchangeable to men. And so we see no distinction uh, between the sexes. But we want to uphold women in every way. On the other hand, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, we try and remove gender altogether as a social construct and say not only are they interchangeable, but there is no gender. It does not exist. We totally ignore biology. And yet it seems that under the surface, we are searching for something, aren't we? We're trying to recover what was lost. We're trying to progress to a point where we'll get things right. And so there is something that is almost unified for humanity. We're looking for something. Women are looking for something. We are on a pursuit that we haven't got it right, but we're looking to get it right. C.S. Lewis describes this idea in the German word sensucht, which is an idea of a spiritual yearning a spiritual yearning for righteousness. He describes it this way. He says, It is sometimes felt as a longing for a far-off country, but not a particularly earthy land which we can identify. Furthermore, there is something in the experience which suggests that this far-off country is very familiar and indicative of what we might otherwise call home. The idea is that we are searching for something when it comes to what is a woman, a place where all things ought to be right. And I'm saying we're looking in the wrong places, but the search itself actually comes from God. We're looking for something that God himself has the answer to. We desire for things to be set right. That is at the heart of the feminism debate and the gender debate right now. We're looking for things to be set right. And the answer is that God has it? So back to Matilda for a moment. Matilda's repressed life is interrupted by two particular things. For the first time in her life, Matilda is introduced to an unconditional love relationship with her new teacher, Miss Honey. Miss Honey encourages Matilda, she spends time with her, she builds her up and doesn't crush her. She's found something she has never seen before, someone who loves her unconditionally. But there is another key ingredient. Matilda is set free by a supernatural encounter. She suddenly manifests the power of telekinesis. That is, she has the ability to move objects with her mind. This supernatural gift meets her just as she needs it and disappears suddenly after a, by a series of miracles. She is set free from both Her nemesis, Miss Trunchbull, and her neglectful parents at the same time. Her freedom comes about through the combination of a supernatural force and unconditional love. Now, like Matilda, we have this crushing expectation on women today that you need to conform to someone else's idea of what it means to be a woman. That is sort of extreme femininity. The idea is that you will only be your true self if you are fully enabled to be free in everything you do, that you have ultimate choice in everything that you do about yourself, an ultimate freedom of expression. And that is a heavy burden to bear. On the other hand, we're being pulled in another direction, That is that there is no gender, that it's just a social construct and so you can be whatever you decide to be. You can have a gender that doesn't really fit with our binary biblical idea. Crushed between two opposing and conflicting but very powerful forces and yet God has a way forward. Like Matilda, God has designed his way to come through an unconditional, a, a relationship based on unconditional love and a divine encounter that will shape the way that women hold their identity entirely. So lastly, I want to take you through to the restoration and renewal of biblical womanhood. I want to take you to a place that actually looks at the biblical framework, looks at the search that women have today. And in fact, all of our society has today. If you look at the top agendas for government uh, and in the social world, you will find that women's equality is almost always in the top five, if not the top three. So this is extremely important in our day and age. And interestingly, Australia has this really long history of caring about the Rights of women. Uh, in 1894, South Australian women got the vote, which was one of the first places in the Western world for that to happen. Uh, we have the uh, leading uh, feminists of the old school, Germaine Greer, of the new school, Clementine Ford. And so, we're in Australia. We are, lo- and Clementine Ford is a South Australian as well. We are looking for women's roles, women's identity, to find its spiritual home in this country and in this time, but how will this be answered? Well, I want to just point you to a bit, it's a, bit a little bit crude because um, this uh, illustration, but it will be helpful, I promise. Uh, Jim Steinman wrote uh, the song for Meatloaf uh, when the lyrics go like this. And I would do anything for love. I'd run right into Helen back. I would do anything for love. I'll never lie to you, and that's a fact. Now, no one really believes that of Meatloaf himself, but the lyrics and the principle of the lyrics are very important because the principle of the lyrics tell us that there is this desire that someone could love us enough to make this kind of commitment. I will... Run to hell and back for you. I'd do anything for love. In fact, most people um, misunderstand the song because of the structure of the lyrics. Because the song goes, uh, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And the question is, what is the that? Well, the that is that he would abandon you. What is the idea that's coming through in this song, which on the outset might seem a little bit crude, but... As you dig deeper into it, has the longings of humanity. Someone who will not let you down, someone who will go to hell and back for you, and someone who will shape your life with unconditional love unsurpassed. I was chatting with a guy just this week. He sort of we have a pug dog, by the way, a new little puppy. And people love pugs, they come to have a come to have a pat. And this guy was telling me, well, dogs are great because they love you unconditionally. And I was like, hang on a second, this is an interesting conversation to start having. I said, yeah, it's interesting. What do you think uh, about people? He said, well, people, that's extremely hard to find. Isn't it true? We can find something in animals, but what about in a person? And one of the, I think, appropriate difficulties women have with men is that they've let them down. Women have problems with men because they've been let down by husbands, they've been let down by fathers, they've been let down by societies which have been predominantly ruled by men, sometimes for good, often for good, and sometimes for evil. Structure in society has excluded women from prominency in politics, in education. Women weren't to be educated in many societies. Did you know the church actually brought that in? Women uh, weren't to be involved in politics in many societies. Women weren't to be involved in most of not only civic but vocational society. And so, rightly, in many ways, women feel a sense, well, how could I trust any man to sort things out? Jesus uh, has some very interesting interactions with women in the New Testament. One of them uh, is in John chapter 4. Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Now, I said Jesus was going somewhere, but he goes way out of his uh, path to go to this well in a Samaritan town. Samaritans were sort of people that the Jews didn't like. They were the outcasts of society. They were second-class citizens, according to the Jews. And, so a, Samar- and a Samaritan woman in a patriarchal society, was very low on the list. Jesus turns up in the heat of the day. There's no other women around, because typically other women would go to get water from the well in the early morning out of the heat. This woman is not there, which is a bit suspicious. Turns out that she is a well-known adulteress. She's had five husbands, and the current man that she's with is not her husband. Now, many people look at this situation and go, well, She's a bad woman. But the culture was actually designed in such a way in that very age that she was trapped. A woman who'd had many husbands and been divorced many times had no right to property or inheritance. She was not able to work to look after herself for the most part because of the way the culture was designed. Uh, She was outcast because of her um, five marriages that had failed. And so she, the only way that she could afford to live and have security in, a, um, in her village and time was to shack up with a man who didn't even have the decency to marry her. So she, like all people, was a sinner and yet she was being sinned against by the structure of society and by the very man who refused to do the right thing with her. And so Jesus turns up. Jesus tends to turn up in unlikely places where he shouldn't be because of the social and cultural pressures. Jesus turns up. It's very uh, inappropriate for a Jewish man to meet with a woman and so this woman says, it's inappropriate for you to be here and Jesus says, I have something to give you. Jesus meets this woman in her place of need. She is struggling to find personal identity. She thinks she needs to get her identity through a man. The societal structure is set up this way, but Jesus is saying there is another way, but a man will bring it to you. Jesus is doing something. He's actually restoring what was broken in Genesis 3. Notice that women's, we brought this up earlier, that women's right place of identity is in right relationship to God and right relationship to man. And so both of those have been broken. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus, the God-man, is coming to restore both at once. She was a vulnerable woman suffering under a harsh system and society. And Jesus met her and he said to her this in John 4.13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, looking at the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus doing here? He is restoring the place of women made in the image of God by restoring her relationships. He, as God, is restoring her relationship to God and saying, it's in me that this will be set right that you will be set free from the expectations of your culture and society because you will now have a divine identity if you receive what I have to give you, eternal life. He's also restoring the relationship of the woman to a man because men have failed her, have they not? Six men, plus maybe others. And And the sixth hasn't even had the decency to marry her to give her a sense that he's in it for good because he'll throw her away as soon as he gets the chance. And what is Jesus saying? Yes, there is one man who will set things right so that your identity no longer needs to come from a human man alone, but your identity can come from the God-man who sets all things right. Now just to pause there for a minute, This is good news. This is good news for women who've been broken by toxic relationships with men. Sometimes those are in uh, poor marriages that have fallen apart. Sometimes those are with poor um, fathers who were absent, who didn't take up their responsibility as they ought to, as we learned about uh, in biblical manhood last week. Sometimes it's just because they've been abused by the structure of the world. Or they've been crushed by these unbelievably high expectations that a woman should find all of her value in her gender. But Jesus lifts us up and says, you can be satisfied through faith in him. You can find what you've been looking for your whole life, your spiritual longing in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one who gives a centre, a place for this spiritual longing. He gives us a place to look and he invites us in. Jesus promised to restore what was lost. In fact, he said he came to seek and to save the lost. And you can only seek and save the lost when you are solid in your own identity. Jesus is someone who said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus' own identity is so secure that he can share that with others. He can give back being made in the image of God to those he meets with. We see in Jesus that he has become the true man that Adam ought to have been. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam ought to have, when the snake came to take down Eve, he should have said, I will face the snake, but he didn't. He neglected his responsibility, but Jesus stands up to the snake Jesus takes evil onto himself. He receives the sins of humanity on the cross and takes its full penalty upon himself for our sake, for love. In this encounter uh, with the Samaritan woman, Jesus divinely enters the life of the woman. He brings the unconditional love and goodness of God to her. He offers himself for her. He restores how things ought to be. Jesus is making a way that the original intention for women can be made not only restored but renewed. can be transformed so that women can find their place in relationship with Jesus. I mentioned that song earlier, you know, this kind of unconditional love where we know that someone would go to the ends of the earth, even to hell and back for us. Well, it's actually only in Jesus' crucifixion that we see this level of commitment. Romans 8 tell us that He who did not neglect to give us His own Son, how will He graciously not give us all things? You know, it's one thing to sing something and to make... You know, uh, these outlandish claims like Bruno Mars, I'll catch a grenade for you, which he would never do, of course, to show and demonstrate love, to, to, to bring in a kind of unconditional love that would change someone from the inside out. And yet Jesus does it, not just through words, but to back it up with action. On a cross, he's showing that he will love you even unto death, and he will do it to make your identity completely secure in him. He will do it to restore the right relationship of women to God by dying for their sin, by giving them new life in himself. So Jesus gives us a fresh vision of womanhood. Jesus gives us a picture where we can actually embrace as women... What it means to be distinctively female. What it means to be able to embrace motherhood, if that is available to us, but also to embrace a career. Proverbs 31 talks about a woman who worked, who was a business owner, who was quite successful. That's not an image often given to us from our 1950s housewife model, is it? And yet the Bible encourages... A woman in her vocation. It also encourages women in their homes to be mothers, to set aside time for motherhood. How can, they, how can a woman be invested in her career or invested in her motherhood or for a season do one and a season do other and feel secure? That's a great challenge because we feel like we're missing out on either end. The only way to do it if your identity is not based in those things. Your identity as a woman does not come from either being a successful mother because, gee, you will just pass that on to your children and be very controlling of them. If your desire is to be a successful mother, you will ensure that your children are successful. You will live vocationally through them. If that becomes the centre of your life. On the other hand, if the centre of your life becomes your career, then you will be crushed if you fail to reach the heights that you aim for. Always yearning for the next step up. And yet if our primary identity is in Jesus, he has said he has come to satisfy us. We sang about this earlier. Jesus has come to satisfy. So that in him things are rightly restored. In him, the relationship between God and man is right. It also tells us for those of us who are women, who are single, whether we're young women or whether we are single for various reasons, that that is okay and in fact good and a holy vocation according to God. Why? How can we find our identity not just in whether we have a husband or not, or a boyfriend because our identity is secure in Jesus because he becomes enough. Another way that we can look at this uh, identity for women from a biblical view is actually to open it up to other women in our lives who don't know Jesus. It is an amazing thing for a woman to have her identity secure in Jesus in a world which is seeking to crush women through unbelievably high expectations of various kinds. And if you, as speaking to the women in particular here, if you are secure in your relationship with Jesus, if he is the one that satisfies you, if you trust in him, if his unconditional love is enough, if your divine encounter with Jesus has become the center place of your life and your knowledge that he died for you and that he has risen from the dead, that you have an inheritance from God the Father based on Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if that is the center of your life, then that is an extremely powerful witness to a world that has no idea what to do with the question, what is a woman? No idea. They ask that question in the halls of education. You don't get an answer. That question is asked in the halls of parliament. You don't get a solid answer. Why? Because nobody knows. But Jesus knows. And when you find your identity in him, for women who are being crushed or have been crushed, they will look to what you have and desire because it is the water by which you will never Be thirsty again. And so let us then, both as men and women, recapture what it means to be a biblical woman in the image of God looking to Jesus. That means, so now I can speak to the men for a little bit. That means as men, we need to uphold a biblical view of what it means to be a woman. Not that the woman is just in the kitchen. It's a 1950s housewife kind of you know, looking after the kids in the kitchen because that is not exclusively biblical. And yet at the same time not put inordinate pressure on women that they must find their identity in their careers because you know what? They're just you know, moving from one idol, which it is to be a perfect mother, to being a perfect career woman. And both of those will crush you. We must men, we must build up women in the way that Jesus has demonstrated for us. I'll finish with this. There's another two women that Jesus met with, Mary and Martha. Now, uh, Mary and Martha had a brother, Lazarus, uh, but notice that Jesus was actually friends with all of them, so the three siblings. And Jesus was good friends with all of them. But the ones we see him spend the most time with was who? Mary and Martha. So Jesus is friends with women in the early first century. That's very unusual. It's very unusual that it's recorded for us. And so Jesus turns up and Martha's sort of running around trying to organise everything, get everything ready for the meal. She wants to you know, put on a good um, spread for Jesus. And uh, she gets upset with her sister, as often happens with sibling rivalry, because Mary's just sitting at the feet listening to him. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will never be taken away from her. We can rush around our whole lives, looking, being busy, looking for different ways that we might be satisfied looking for different places to grasp our identity from, depending on your stage of life as a woman, depending on your circumstance of life as a woman. We could be grabbing at one thing, grabbing at career, grabbing at motherhood, grabbing at our physical prettiness or lack thereof, what we perceive. We can be grabbing at all these different things, our level of empowerment or whatever it might be. And yet, the good portion, the life giving portion, comes from being with Jesus. Because if, if you receive from Him, then all the other parts of your life are set right. It was said by one of the early reformers that if Jesus becomes your first love, He rightly orders every other love in your life. And so let us be a church, let us be women, let us be men look to God's perspective on these things and uphold him and Christ as glorious. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your perspective on what it means to be a woman. We thank you, uh, Lord, for giving us uh, women in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you made women in your image. Uh, Lord, that they, because of who they are in you, are valuable. But we pray that you would help us as a culture to change our views on these things, to move away from things that unhinge uh, your biblical foundation. But Lord, we know that it's only possible if people come to a knowledge and faith in Jesus Christ ultimately. And so we pray that you would do that work in our hearts and in our time. Well, please bless the women of this church. Please help them to see themselves as being made in your image and restored by right relationship with, to you, Lord Jesus. Grant to us the courage to share this good news with those outside of this family, that they might see and give the glory to God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.